And so when we talk about how to reconnect after trauma, after church hurt, it looks very much like helping your body feel safe, helping your emotions feel safe, helping your your thoughts be in a safe space. And that may look like tiny little steps bit by bit, one bit at a time. And that's part of what I would consider to be very sacred work is a person who looks at a world where God feels dangerous and they still push in. And that to me is just worthy of so much awe. Hey friend, before we get started, I have a couple of questions for you. First, do you get my monthly newsletter? When you sign up using the link in the show notes, you'll get monthly updates on the podcast, tips for saying yes to God's promises, and a special writing feature just for newsletter subscribers. Second, do you want to help increase the reach of this podcast? Well, you can by rating the show, at least if you like it, or writing a review, or sharing it with a friend by text, email, or on social media. And if you really love what I'm doing and want to help financially support the production of this podcast, you can contribute through the link in the show notes or just reach out. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the 8,000 Promises podcast. I'm your host, A.D. Tilford. I'm so glad you're here. This season, we are really going to dig into what it looks like to say yes to God's promise for relationship, even if your past is marked with pain that might make it hard to trust God's promises are for you. In this series, I'll talk with guests who are learning about, leaning into, and embracing God's promises for relationship. I'm super excited about this special edition Holy Week episode. Spencer Owen is my new friend, and he is passionate about mental health and pursuing theological truth and understanding. Our episode has come together quickly with our interview happening just a few days ago, and I wanted to get this content around atonement and forgiveness out to you as we head into Easter weekend, so I didn't do a ton of editing on this one. Spencer was born and raised in central Illinois and went to college at Huntington University near Fort Wayne, Indiana. While there, he discovered his passion for helping people heal from their psychological hurts. After graduation, he went to University of Colorado Colorado Springs for his master's degree in counseling and human development. He started out as a school counselor working with elementary and middle school aged kids. Then he started to get his hours for his licensure. And after he achieved that, he left education, started working in a group counseling practice, specializing in adolescents and couples. And last June, he opened his own private practice, Renewed Life Counseling. Since then, he's gained additional certification in working with trauma. He now operates his private practice in Colorado Springs, specializing in using innovative and integrative counseling techniques to help people heal from trauma of all kinds, but particularly in the areas of spiritual trauma and religious abuse. So with that, there's a content warning, of course. We don't get into any specific examples But because we do discuss the fact that there is a reality of spiritual trauma, religious abuse, and references to recovery from the impact of child sexual abuse, I want you to, of course, as always, please take care of yourself. And we, both Spencer and I want you to know that we recognize that these topics and concepts might be very triggering and you might need to connect with somebody to listen with this, listen to this with you 
and help you process it. Feel free to reach out to either of us. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Spencer Owen as much as I did. Hello, Spencer. Thank you Hello. so much for joining me on the 8,000 Promises podcast. I feel super excited to talk to you today and just learn from you because our topic today is one that I am hungry to learn more about. And my guess is my listeners are too. So mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks for coming. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. We have a mutual <laughs> friend. I actually know him in person and Spencer has mm-hmm. met him through the internet, but through this mutual friend, Hey Josh, cause we know you're listening. We get to have the privilege of talking about a topic that was brought up in one of the earlier episodes this season, but we are going to bring this into Holy Week. We are going to bring this into the world in a week as the church prepares for Easter and celebrating the resurrection and really the foundation of the Christian faith. But before Mm, we mm -hmm. dig into this exciting and big topic, (laughs) Spencer, will you just give the listeners a little bit of your story, what's led you to the work you do, and even maybe a taste of why you're passionate about the topic of atonement and the resurrection? Absolutely. So I actually have a fairly traditional sort of church upbringing and story. Uh, I grew up in a kind of fairly run-of-the-mill Midwestern evangelical church experience. My family and I, we went to church communities in the Wesleyan holiness tradition until I got into college. And I remember doing one of those kind of altar calls at about age seven or so. And I remember wanting to do that at the time, but I can't really recall exactly what my motivation was. I was still kind of young. I suspect it probably had a lot to do with just kind of doing what you're supposed to do, what the adults kind of wanted you to do, expected you to do. And honestly, that kind of became a bit of a theme in a lot of my childhood and adolescence, sort of like doing the quote unquote good Christian kid things. I I mean, that would, in my world, that included things like, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday services, potluck lunches, church camps, flannel graphs and Sunday school, you know, sword drills, Bible quizzing, youth group lock-ins, mission trips, just like all that late 90s, early 2000s stuff. Yes, I was a big DC Talk fan. Oh, um, me too! <laughs> Down the DC Talk! <laughs> yes. Yes, that that was actually my first cassette tape was actually, I, know, I believe it was New Thing, actually. We're so that. old, cassette tape. Yes, 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 yes I am. Uh, Definitely I said we, dating we, because myself, I actually. also had it. Yes. Yes. I and did a I did a group dance for the middle school talent show to a DC talk song. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh my good. Yeah, I, I still have, you know, old school audio adrenaline before they kind of semi-merged with newsboys. You know, I have those songs just living rent-free in my head. So um, good. So it's <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't know what yeah. a Flannel something is, or a sword. Flannel graph. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. So sword drills were these things where like, basically they would give you a, you hold your Bible up because it, it was called the sword of the, the sword. Spirit, yeah. The word okay. of God. Yes. <laughs> you'd hold your Bible up. They'd give you a passage and you'd have to like open it up. And this is before the days that you could just look it up on your phone, of course. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you'd have to flip around to it. And whoever got there first was apparently more holy than everybody else. So, oh, were you pretty holy? Um, like, were you the holiest? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy oh just kidding uh, let me put it this way i sure thought i was oh um, <laughs> yeah 
Excellent. Excellent. What a great. Yeah. Okay. But, and I mean, that, that actually is a really good example of how there, there is an awful lot of just kind of ambivalence that I have about that upbringing because I have a lot of, I mean, very fond memories. I have a lot of, I, I thoroughly believe that every single person who I encountered in my youth group and my church history is, was, you know, fully on board with what they believed was in my best interest for the well-being and health of my immortal soul. And I don't think they had any kind of malicious motive or intent and they were just totally sincere in their own faith journey. And so I have a lot of respect and a lot of admiration and I have a lot of gratitude for all the foundation that they've given me. Um, but at the same time, you know, along with all these little cultural moments we're kind of joking about, there also was this, like, I remember having several totally unnecessary and cringy kind of stand up for Jesus apologetic moments. One in particular in my eighth grade science class, I remember, because I kind of felt like that was what you had to do. It was what you're supposed to do. I remember reading Left Behind series and being convinced I would be raptured if, or I would not be raptured if I had any kind of unconfessed sin. I came out of the purity culture with true love weights and purity rings and things and purity pledges and stuff like that. And so it's just, it's, it's very much a mixed bag. And I mean, the fact kind of at the end of the day for me is that along the way, I just kind of realized that I had absorbed a lot of pretty unpleasant views about creation, about gender, about sex, about bodies, about emotions, and just about the whole world in general. And I can't really point to a single tipping point per se. It's just more just like an accumulation of several different data points. The exposure to alternative ways of reading the Bible in college, which, I mean, by the way, I went to a conservative evangelical Christian college. It wasn't necessarily, a, you know, shaking my faith, liberal, quote unquote, place. It was just getting outside the bubble, pretty much. I remember having some really tough Bible studies with some friends where we wrestled really heavily with the text. I remember running into some people who really shook up my framework for approaching the scriptures, N.T. Wright in particular. And all of those just kind of left me seeing pretty clearly how there really is a lot of what I would call toxic theology in that evangelical worldview that I grew up in. And I could easily walk away from that and feel very bitter, very angry, very, and just kind of give up on God entirely and deconstruct all the way, all the way to deconversion. There are several people, it's almost kind of like a little cottage industry online where that's what they yeah. do. I'm just and learning I have, this. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go. I really had a, only had an idea of deconstruction of it being this space of asking really hard questions, really important questions. Mm -hmm. That made sense mm -hmm. to me, but I listened to an interview on another podcast with my friend Mariah who mm -hmm. I talked on right before you. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. I love that episode, by the way. That was gosh, such a great episode. On her, her podcast is just what you're talking about, where it's like, hey, let's get oh, in my goodness. talk about these hard things. One of those episodes that left me going, whoa, was her episode on deconstruction, where that mm -hmm. exact framework was brought that it's actually about completely letting go of all of it. And yeah. I was thinking, oh, that th that's why there's some pushback. Right. In right. certain Christian environments, Again, yes. Oh. using the word deconstruction, which absolutely right, it's, it's a spectrum, just like so many things. Mm -hmm. It really, really is. And unfortunately, there's just there, there's so much of that cultural pressure within the evangelical subculture of well, 
like you said that, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about deconstruction, like, well, what are your motives? What are you really saying? And then there's a lot of really pat, very simplistic, very easy answers to that. Like, well, you just got to read the Bible more or pray more. And I mean, quite frankly, for me, what kind of put me on a deconstruction path was reading the Bible. Like, and the thing is, I was always a, a huge reader as a kid. I was always very intellectually focused. I did a lot of thinking about things. And so when I say that I didn't really read portions of the Bible, like, that's saying a lot. And this was a culture that was thoroughly steeped in every corner of get into the word, get into the word, daily be in the word and stuff like that. And I still missed it. And I just, I really want to be, have a lot of compassion for the people who do deconstruct and who do go all the way to deconversion because they, I, I understand why they do it. And I understand where they're coming from. And I understand how just unsettling that experience can be of how could I not have seen this? How could I never have encountered that in that way before? Yeah. And really even one of the things I've been really loving in the last year is another podcast called the Bayma Discipleship Podcast. Oh my goodness. You're batting a thousand with me <laughs> at least. <laughs> well the approach to understanding biblical text from the cultural yes. context. Yes. From the Messianic Jewish, his, the history mm -hmm. and the culture of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I could probably, I could study that for life. Like it has mm -hmm. reinvigorated me to mm -hmm. just, just understand the text so differently because it mm -hmm. wasn't taught that way. Well, absolutely. I, I and the way that you said that is like, I could study that for life. There's a big part of me that says that's exactly the way it's designed to be. You know, one of the hallmarks of that evangelical worldview growing up was this idea of the sufficiency of scripture or the, the clarity of scripture, the idea that anybody can come to it and get the message they need to get. And if they don't, it's because there's something wrong with them. They're, you know, wrapped in their sin or whatever else they may be. And the more I get into it, and I, I want to be really careful not to say, okay, it just, you know, confuses me more. It really doesn't. Like, I feel, I do feel like I have a lot more clarity about the Bible than I ever have, but I also have landed in a very different place than I ever was. And a lot of that has to do with going back to the actual scripture and learning about the historical context and thinking, it through and realizing that maybe these things aren't as cut and dry and clear cut and black and white and easy as we want to think perhaps. And I don't by that mean, and I, it's so funny. I always have like kind of running commentary in the back of my head as I talk where I almost have those versions of my past experiences saying, yeah, but, <laughs> you know, the whole time. And those parts of me are coming in there and right after I say that, changing that and say, and pushing back on that and saying, okay, well, does that just mean you're going off into rampant subjectivism? You, you can just make the Bible say whatever you want to say. And Which is something I, somebody's going to say about this conversation. Right? Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I think at the end of the day, I've kind of landed in the place where I do still go to a fairly moderately not completely, but moderately conservative evangelical church. And I'm a member there and I'm very involved there. And I really love that community. And I think that's one of the things that I really feel, I want to, <laughs> I almost have an allergic reaction to the word called because of some of the history behind that. But yeah. I do feel a conviction. I do feel God pushing me in the direction of, you need to love these people and you need to love this community because I do too. And that's something that I really, huh? Sorry. Hey, I feel it. I'm feeling it on this side too. 
weird that's when something God, it's weird when god puts <laughs> it's weird in a holy way when it god is puts yes people in our world yeah we never could have thought that's exactly who we were supposed to be connected yep. Yep. Makes it yep. clear to us that they are absolutely yep. ours because they are his. Absolutely. That is a hundred percent. It is like, I now view like in the way that I relate with, to God is as he's the one who may be on purpose for a purpose, who loves me indescribably. And he feels the exact same way about every single human being that he created. And that includes the people who continue to hold to these toxic theologies. That includes the people who deconstruct and deconvert. That includes every single human being that he created. And it is, I want, my passion is to, in my counseling practice, in my personal walk, in my interpersonal interactions with people that I'm in communion with and fellowship with, I want to be that version of the gospel to them. And that's my hope. And that's what I'm passionate about. I've been privileged to get to talk well, in a couple of places, and I get to give this talk one more time. It's on Ephesians 4. And essentially, I kind of end with this piece of, well, the idea of unity doesn't mean that we all think and believe exactly the same way, but that mm-hmm. we actually need to lean into people who are the other or different from us, because we all, if we love yes. Jesus, we're all bringing Jesus yes. to other people. Yes. And my last line, I've just been thinking about it, but when you said that, I was thinking about this again, that anytime we encounter somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet, the way that we're behaving, the way that we're living, the way that we're talking, mm-hmm. that's where they get to see that Jesus is for them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like you just said, there. it's every single person. It's this whole spectrum. Yep. Everyone's invited. Mm-hmm. And they're not mm-hmm. going to hear the invitation. Mm-hmm. Not going to be able to open heart and invitation. Mm-hmm. If the Christian they encounter is acting in a way that closes that. Yep. You know. Absolutely, and it, it's so it's so difficult. I did a sermon at my church a while back about speaking the truth in love and how we don't do the latter, the in love part by doing the former, speaking the truth. And I just, I've encountered that so often where people say, well, I'm just telling them the truth, which shows them I love them. And that's just not the way that neurology or brains or humans, that's not the way God built us. God built us to have relational connection as a prerequisite to opening up the neural pathways that allow us to be able to see the logic and the reason and and create that belief. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. That ver- the speak truth and love is all part of Ephesians 4. So, I've been talking a lot about that. But I, yes, mm-hmm. I needed to hear that today. I needed that. Uh, just well, that, thank you. That way to say mm-hmm. it to that reminder. Mm-hmm. Because that's the critical piece. If we understand mm-hmm. God's design, we understand how we're made, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. every person is made. Mm-hmm. We do need to understand that the in love part, even though in the text it's it comes after, in order for the truth to be heard, it must come first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm certainly giving God the credit for that because that wasn't in my initial thoughts or <laughs> write up of you know what to say. So that one's not from me. <laughs> hey, we'll take it. We'll say our amen for that when we get those, <laughs> when we get those gems. This seems like a great place to move into our discussion around atonement 
And what is atonement? What does that mean for Christians? Yeah. Well, it's both a huge topic and a very, very important and very important topic. It's funny when I was talking about how that deconstruction process came out of going back to the text and actually reading the text. One of the biggest areas that happened was in the book of Leviticus, because I mean, like most Christians, especially ones who grew up with that history that I have, you know, you do your Bible in a year reading plan and you're booking along after they get out of the land of Egypt. And there's this big song about how God is a man of war. And then it just comes to a screeching halt. And you might kind of get a little bit interested at the golden calf incident, but then there's like this huge list of how to build the tabernacle and all these different laws. And several of them seem really weird. And then by the time you get to Leviticus, you're just, you're up to your eyeballs in, in strange. And so a lot of people just kind of skip Leviticus or stop entirely there. And it's been fascinating for me because I got to a point where my wife and I waited a long time to have any kids by choice. And we uh, got to a point where we started to decide, I think maybe we want to do this. And at that point, I started to, it started to really hit me like, I'm going to be responsible for the spiritual development of another human being, another life that God is going to entrust to me. And I don't know that I can really explain what happened on the cross. I don't know that I can say it and, you know, explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. I don't know that I can do that well. And so I went back to the text, started looking at saying, well, what does the New Testament say about what happened on the cross? And then the more I did that, the more I realized there were a lot of phrases like ransom or bearing sin or those kind of things that really seemed to have hyperlinks, to use a Tim Mackey Bible project term, had hyperlinks back to Leviticus. And I went back there and I started to realize that what those terms mean just simply is not what I've been taught in that upbringing. Mm. So it kind of kicked off the, this process of trying to understand from the perspective of the traditional point of view. It kicked off about seven years of really, really deep study to understand more that concept of atonement in a very biblical way rather than according to the tradition. And when I've done that, I've noted that, I mean, well, okay, first of all, just to make sure that we kind of lay the ground, because I don't want to assume that everyone knows when I say traditional, what that means. So, so the traditional understanding of atonement focuses primarily on the death of Jesus. So that would be like, you know, Good Friday in this week and says that God had to punish sin in order to be just. So he designated Jesus as the substitute to take on the punishment of all that sin in our place which then satisfied his wrath and or his justice. It kind of depends on who you talk to as to what they emphasize. And after that satisfaction, then he could offer forgiveness to kind of you know split the baby, so to speak, and do be both merciful and just at the same time. And that approach is referred to as penal substitutionary atonement or PSA for short. Penal is a reference to like the, the judicial system, like we get locked up in, in the prison. That's the penal system. So, you know, penal meaning that justice, criminal justice system. The idea being that we have criminally sinned against God and his justice requires a response. And the way that's usually framed is it that response has to be death for even the tiniest infraction, which if you want to go back to where that creates this kind of toxic theology mindset and how that messes with people, like I know for me, it really messed with my sense of who God was. Yeah. To say that like any tiny little thing, not just simply that it wasn't always that he would 
you know, quote unquote, kill me, strike me dead. But it was definitely like, if it weren't for Jesus, he would have, <laughs> and he would have been fully just in doing so. And the only reason that I can't see that is because of my sin. And that really does a number on you, on your sense of yourself, on your sense of God, on your sense of what Jesus is here for. And that's where you get like the substitution idea that he stood in our place and took the punishment in our place. And that whole idea of Jesus dying in our place under that framework is intended to be what we call the atonement. So that's kind of the traditional reading. And it's really interesting that you see this a lot around Easter, because actually the resurrection itself plays a very minor role in that traditional formulation. It's seen as almost little more than like just the confirmation or the approval, which God gives to the death of Jesus as an supposedly as an acceptable substitutionary sacrifice. And of course, like things like the Ascension is barely mentioned at all. But the problem that I ran into is going back to the way the apostles and the way the church fathers talked about Jesus and his life, death, resurrection. That's just not, that framework of PSA is not how they talked about it. Now they use substitution language, but they use substitution language within a framework that is all about healing and I mean, the the kind of technical term there is ontology, like our being. So the idea being that Jesus came to, well, actually this is in First John, I believe 3, 8, you know, the son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And that was why he came to earth was to bear our sicknesses and carry our diseases as Matthew in chapter 18 quotes Isaiah 53, which is usually seen as this ultimate suffering servant, penal, substitutionary atonement passage, Matthew says, well, just like the prophet Isaiah said, he fulfilled this in his life. And that's the kicker is that the more I went back to the text, the more of a sense I got the way the apostles, the church fathers, and the text itself talked about what Jesus did. It was about his life healing all of humanity they emphasize the resurrection of Jesus as the defeat of death and his ascension as that enthronement of the priest and the king who always lives to make intercession on our behalf. Now, of course, language about his death is there, but it just doesn't have the focus that it has in, say, like, for example, the Passion of the Christ, you know, which is another evangelical kind of touch point where the resurrection is essentially a mid credit scene. So we have to be careful when we talk about the atonement and Easter and get this broader picture that zooms out beyond the cross and looks at the all of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, as well as his ascension. Okay, seriously. Okay, Josh said he's going to blow minds. I'm sure it is. I feel like what you're talking about with mm-hmm. the life of Jesus and the resurrection, and especially the gift of the Holy Spirit and God living among us and God's kingdom being on earth right now because God is mm-hmm. in each of us mm-hmm. and he's interceding for each of us alongside the father. That is what has been speaking so much to me and through me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I've had this hang up okay. that I didn't know how to talk about with this death piece mm. and the sin and the yes. dying. I like you named, you just named where this, that I could, yes. I don't think I could name what the hangup was, mm-hmm. but just that, okay, this traditional message that it was Jesus being whipped and mm-hmm. destroyed physically, which mm-hmm. is horrific. Mm-hmm. Somehow satisfied God's me. justice. 
Yeah. Yes. But actually what's for me, and this is what lines up so much with when you start looking at Torah and you start understanding mm-hmm. how much God loves his creation and mm-hmm. we are made in God's image. We are so good and beloved. Yes. Human beings are his favorite yes. part. They're, we're his mm-hmm. favorite part. Mm-hmm. I have like Mm-hmm. Why would God ever want his favorite part to just be physically destroyed? And it doesn't line up with this message that God's been telling me about. I never wanted you to be hurt. Yes. I never wanted you to be abused. Yes. I don't want you living in toxic relationship. Yep. I want goodness and wholeness. And that's that. And healing. Healing. And a life more abundant, as Jesus said. Uh, yeah, everyone quotes, you know, John 3, 16. And, but then the very next verse says, for the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, no, but to save the world. Yes. 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 So actually, it's really interesting because going back to the word atonement, that word was literally created by William Tyndale when he was translating the scriptures and, and he kind of made it like a, an amalgam. I believe the, I think it's a portmanteau, I believe is the technical term for it, where it, it's like at one meant. So the idea there is of reconciliation. Now, it usually gets hijacked to mean, okay, well, we're reconciled because God's justice was satisfied, which now means that he can forgive us. But really, when you go back to Leviticus, what atonement is about God being always willing and willing to go to any lengths to make sure that he can live in the middle of his people. It's about God making a way for his people to be in him to be in the midst of his people. So what that looked like in the Leviticus actual text was cleansing. So that yes, there was a death of an animal, but here's the really important part. The death was just never ritualized. It was, it's almost an afterthought in the text. It's, there's so much more time focused and spent on what to do with the blood, what to do with the different pieces of the animal. And all those things are what really matters, not the blood. And then there you have Leviticus 17, 11, where it says the life of the animal is in the blood. So the blood means life, not death. And so the whole idea here is that life stuff, quote unquote, which is blood, gets applied to quote unquote death stuff or the contamination and corruption that caused by sin, it gets applied to sacred space and that space was made clean from the stain caused by the sins of the people. And what's interesting is when you look at that, like the blood was never really, because I heard this an awful lot in the evangelical culture of being covered in the blood or have the blood applied to me or have the, my robes washed in the blood of the lamb. There are vague hints of that kind of language in scripture, but by and large, in Leviticus in particular, the people themselves never had blood applied to them. I mean, there's two or three kind of special cases, but it's not about like the sin offering Mm. because what blood did was it cleaned away the contamination that their sin caused and made it so that God could continue to live in their midst. But they themselves were cleaned by the repentance and trust in the character of God, the the God who in Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses and says, "Uh, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, who is compassionate, gracious. He goes through this whole list of just a ton of different examples. And I wrote them down because it's so really, it's really, really important to get this. That he says, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, forgiving rebellion and sin. And then he goes on to say that he's a just God who will deal with sin, 
but he places that in a 1,000 to 3 proportion to his love, which aligns perfectly with what First John tells us about God, that God is love. He has justice, but he is love. And it is his love that restrains his justice and not the other way around, or at least what we think is needed by his justice. That's more a more accurate way to put that. And so that's what I saw when I went back to Leviticus, is a God who said, I know that if I can live in the midst of my people, they will be the light of the world that will bring the whole world to me. And so I need to make a way to make that happen. And so let's do the sacrificial system where we can cleanse the sacred space so that I can continue to live in their midst. And all I ask of them is, the, well, like the prophets say several times, the God doesn't delight in sacrifices. He delights in the sacrifices of a pure and contrite heart. Anyone who turns to him in repentance will be forgiven. And that is what is the heart of God in the scriptures when I went back and dug into it. And so I know it sounds kind of weird to use the term deconstruction to apply to kind of where I, that process and where I landed, because I'm still kind of landing in a very, I would argue, orthodox space in terms of God and Jesus. But it's it really is what I see in the text every single time I go back there, is that atonement, that reconciliation was not made through death, but through life. Okay. And seriously, what this is what I just is coming to my heart right now. And I'm just thinking about the shift of thinking or how to talk about this, but Jesus did not take this atrocious punishment and beating because mm -hmm. I was. Yep. Instead, it's actually Correct. a symbol of everything. None of us deserves. hundred percent. I yep. like, Oh my gosh, this is so good. So <laughs> the, I, the, like, that reality that it's actually the reason why it's so horrific to us is because we know it's what nobody deserves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And God, yep. he, he conquered what everyone, he conquered what no one deserves, but does happen. Yep. We live yep. in a society, we live in culture where these atrocities happen, these tragedies mm -hmm. happen. These abuses mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. Human beings to human beings. Mm -hmm. Nobody deserved that. Mm -hmm. God stood in it and mm -hmm. conquered. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then said, and, and, you'll never have to conquer con this without me. Yes, yes. And conquered it, yes, by being the sin bearer. But the thing is about the sin bearer in Leviticus is that that, only, that word only applies to two figures, the priest and the goat for Azazel, neither of which die because of that role. So like when First Peter, for example, says, you know, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that is not him saying, well, he bore the guilt that we had to take, and so God had to punish him, and so that's what happened. It's, it's Peter saying, well, following up with the consistent language of the gospel writers and the apostles that says that Jesus was peridetomai, is the Greek, was handed over, was given up to the powers of sin and death, as exampled in sinful men. So it usually says he, the Son of Man was given up to sinful men, or was given up to Gentiles, or was given up to, there's a couple other figures that are said there. So the whole idea of what happened on the cross is the goat for Azazel, that in Leviticus 16, gets his hands get placed on it, or has the hands of the high priest placed on its head, 
sins confessed over it. The sins are then transferred to the goat, and the goat then goes out into the wilderness, which is the realm of the goat demons, the realm of Azazel, and takes all of that sin and drops it on Azazel's doorstep. <laughs> it drops it on the doorstep of the forces of evil and says, I think this belongs to you. <laughs> <I love that>. <laughs> <laughs> which is, again, another one of these atonement moments. And I think it's really important to say that that is an atoning event. That moment of the the live goat that is not killed being sent into the wilderness, into the power of the forces of darkness, to carrying the sins on its shoulders, and then dropping them in the wilderness and saying, this is where they belong, not in the middle of my people, not in the middle of sacred space. They belong out here. That's where they came from. That's where they're going to go back to. And so when I read Isaiah 53, and I did a super deep study and deep dive in 2020 during COVID of what's called Deutero Isaiah, which is Isaiah 40 through 66. And I spent a lot of time on Isaiah 53. And the more that I'd looked at that, the more closely I saw that really the suffering servant is portrayed as a priest, which is that sin bearer. So when the language in Isaiah 53 says that God laid on him the iniquity of us all, there's that priestly role. And you see that at the very beginning and at the end of Isaiah 52, where he says that he will sprinkle many nations, there's a priestly role, that he will make intercession for the sins of the people, there's a priestly role, that he will make a, a sham, which is a guilt offering on behalf of the people, there's a priestly role. Like all, it's, it's all over the place when you look at it closely that Isaiah 53 is saying, yes, the suffering servant, Jesus, in this particular instantiation, there's a whole thing about Jesus, Israel. I won't go into that. But anyway, that the suffering servant is a priest for Israel on behalf of Israel. And he bears those sins and does service on their behalf so that they can continue to be the beloved of, that they can continue to be the presence of God and embody that role as being the beloved of God. And we see this in Hebrews 12, when the author says that Jesus suffered outside the gate. So there again, there's that sin bearer goat for Azazel role all over again. Like it's just like the more you look at the actual text, the more clear it becomes to me that what happened on the cross was Jesus being handed over to the forces of darkness to, for them to do what they do, not for God to do what he had to do. And those forces of darkness, the brutality of the cross is supposed to be there because that's what the forces of darkness do. Yes. They steal, kill, and destroy. Yes. And that's what they did on the cross. And by and then you have in Hebrews 2, where the author says that he took he himself took on flesh so that he might be like us in every respect, and so that he could redeem from slavery through the fear of death all of those who were held in that lifelong slavery because of the fear of death. That's what he did. He, through death, he defeated death. And that there's that kind of goat for Azazel role of taking all the sins on the shoulder and just saying, I think this belongs to you. This is your weapon, is not your, mine. This is your enemy, that the only yes. enemy that we have, the, the yes. darkness, the Satan, like this is yours. Yep. 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 Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. nobody that nobody here, no, none of these human beings that are made in my image, none of them deserve that. I know what you're doing to them. I know how you're torturing them. I know how you're, yep. Uh, yep. How you are harming them. Yep. That is no, that this belongs. Yep. To take it back. 
Mm-hmm. If you read Romans five through eight, like especially Romans five and six, the language there is of dominion, slavery, enslavement. It is just so frequent. Like if you really sit down and go, I'm going to look for language that could connect to slavery and being under the rule of somebody. We see it so stinking often in Romans five through six. And it ends with that line from 623, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the picture being painted in Romans 5 through 6 is of humanity being under the dominion of, enslaved by, under the thumb of a cruel oppressor, a cosmic tyrant, as Matthew Corasimon would say. And that tyrant pays wages, so to speak, for service rendered. He says, okay, you did this, I will do that. That's the sin economy, the moral economy of the tyrant, not of God, because God is contrasted as a totally different master who pay who doesn't pay him wages at all. Paul says that in Romans 4. He says, that's not how God operates when he talks about Abraham. He God gives the free gift of eternal life. And so it really is, and I hope you can kind of hear just like this passion as I talk about it, because it it's both infuriating to me that the God that I worship and the God that I love is, and the God that I see in the scriptures is being painted as the cosmic tyrant who Jesus had to come to save us from. When really what he is, is the one who gives, who is the exact opposite of that, who has a totally different moral economy, who deals in free gift of his own life, which is another reference to the life is in the blood, not by needing to have death and killing. Oh my gosh, Spencer, I feel like I don't even know, you know, who is going to listen. I hope a lot of people, but I feel like I'm going to listen to this episode like 70,000 times <laughs> because it's, and rough. I haven't even gotten to Colossians two or oh gosh, <laughs> Romans eight, three, or <laughs> I, I just, you, oh, I, I, I so just inspiring to me. Thank you. First of all, for, yes, for, for yes. studying in this way. And mm-hmm. then for sharing your gift of understanding this. And I am just so in agreement with you. And I just want to say this, that the Jesus who met me on the floor of my office, as I mm-hmm. grieved the biggest losses mm-hmm. in my life is the Jesus that you just described. This is the God you mm-hmm. described that it is all love. It is all compassion. And yes, mm-hmm. Our God has a heart for justice, which is part of that is that reconciliation Mm -hmm. to to him Mm -hmm. because of that great compassionate love he has for us, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the language used for justice in the Old Testament is like, is essentially like righting wrongs by it. It's all about taking the people who have been oppressed, who have been, who are vulnerable, who have been hurt, who have been traumatized, who have been burned and making it right for them. And I love one of the things that N.T. Wright says, he is, and I'm not going to try to quote it because it's just so good. I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> but basically he says, if God doesn't injustice and if God doesn't hate bombings of villages with children, then he's not just. Right. Um, of course he is. And then, and Yes. And he's not love. If God doesn't hate shooters shooting nine-year-old children, then he's not love. And so I want to be really, really clear that this is not in any way trying to diminish the wrath of God or the, or the justice of God. It is just trying to put it into proper biblical context of saying the wrath of God 
falls on the powerful and the justice of God is for the vulnerable. And that to me is the gospel in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's hard to hear even that, or or maybe it's just really important to remember that the people committing the acts of atrocity are maybe they are wrapped up by those forces of evil, those forces yes. of darkness, yes. but God still is longing yes. to recapture yes. those hearts too. Yes. Right. And that exactly is one of the reasons why I feel that conviction to remain in a space that I would say has messed me up in some ways, has caused some harm. And I don't want to, I don't want to over-dramatize my experience and say that I've been abused because there are many people who have gone through far, 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 far worse than I have. And I work with those people because I do specialize in spiritual trauma and religious abuse. And I want to honor their stories by not putting myself in their category. And I don't want to say that, but I do think that there has been some church hurt and there has been those toxic theologies that I still wrestle with. And I go to my own therapy for, or I have gone to my own therapy for. And that is part of what God came to save is, yeah, that. that. No, I was going to say that salvation means rescue and it means rescue from oppression. And that is what I see. The work that I do is trying to, trying in some tiny way to participate in and be a part of. But it's a magnanimous way for the people you serve. Mm -hmm. But only through the power of God. There you go, that's it. Well, that that was a large topic. It's a big one. Atonement, reconciliation. Let's move into the one other thing we really wanted to talk about today was Mm -hmm. the how. How then do we reconcile? Maybe we start, maybe we deconstruct and we come to this place you found, or maybe for the person who's endured any kind of abuse, but let's talk about spiritual abuse and church hurts. We both share, we talked about this before, but we both share a passion for this idea of a trauma-informed church and how, mm-hmm. you know, as church members, we get to participate in creating that and making that happen. So what are some ways, yes. and let's talk about for both sides, for both members of the church who may or may not have had anything to do with the harm caused mm-hmm. and the people who've been harmed, how yeah. does reconnection work? How does reconciliation come to fruition? What are some of the things mm. you've learned and that you share or work with your clients? Mm-hmm. Just a small question for you. This, oh. Yeah, just a <laughs> tiny one. <laughs> and I do want to be careful because I in, in N.T. Wright's podcast, one of the things he says very often, you can't pastor from a podcast. And so oh, I always want to clarify to people, this has to be done in a community of like-minded people who will provide a safe space for that. If that might be one-on-one with a therapist, it might be in a support group, it might be in a church community, if you can find a safe space and a way to do that. But it needs to be something that people come alongside you to walk with you. I would also say, you know, exactly what the Bible says, that where two or three are gathered in my name, then there am I with them. That's That community includes God. Even if that even if you're, even if a person may be sitting there screaming at God and yelling at God and calling him names, he can take it. He's fine with that. He is deeply in love with them and is chasing after them in every way possible. Yes. It's, that's powerful. Thank you for that 
really mm-hmm. important reminder as we mm-hmm. hit these big issues, these big theological issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the, these are real people. These are real people with real hurts behind these. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do we reconnect? The tricky part about it is that one of the, I mean, I did get an extra certification in working with trauma and I focused in the area of neuroscience. And one of the things that I discovered is how, what, one of the biggest things that trauma does is it wires us for protection instead of connection. Where we encounter any kind of stimuli that even remotely activates that trauma response, we immediately go into fight, flight, freeze, fawn, some kind of protective mode. Um, and that's both part of how God wired us because that's part of what keeps us alive and part of what our survival is dependent on, but it also inhibits our ability to connect. And so the first thing I want to just say to anybody struggling with that is that you're not crazy and (laughs) this is not, Yes. yes, this, this is not at all easy. This is difficult. This is hard work. And this is part of why God hates sin so much, because this is the damage that it caused to the people that he loves. I will say for me in learning that same science and realizing part of my design is that protective stance when there is true danger. Mm -hmm. And that because of my life story, I have a system that will go to fear faster than maybe all people do. Mm -hmm. When I learned that it wasn't something to be ashamed of. No. Because I was designed that way to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And also that God has this longing for me to fully participate in life. Mm -hmm. So that I could start to learn how. Mm -hmm. Yes. To get to connection. Yeah. Better or, or different or to recognize Mm -hmm. the protection space and when it was appropriate, when it wasn't. Right. I'm still doing that work. Like I am not there. (laughs) I'm still doing that work every day, but yeah. And that's it. And not be ashamed. Absolutely. And I really, really appreciate you sharing that. And I want to just honor the courage that it takes to be able to talk about that out loud because that's not something that normally is welcome. So thank you. Yeah. And I did feel crazy. Like I appreciate you saying you're not crazy because I did feel that for a really long time. What is wrong with me? That question, what is wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with me. Mm -hmm. This is how Mm -hmm. I made. Nope. Nope. And time doesn't matter. Person doesn't matter. Place doesn't matter. I mean, trauma memories are encoded into the part of the brain that is not concerned with time and space. And so the fact that it happened 20 years ago, 45 years ago, the fact that it happened with this person and not the person who I have in front of me, it does not matter. All it takes is for an amygdala response to be activated and immediately all of those protective mechanisms go into play. And you know, so, what? I had a major trigger happen on Wednesday, mm-hmm. but the coolest thing is I heard God immediately say to me, you know who you are. But I mean, and I navigated that so differently because I heard that voice and knew that's the one I'm supposed to listen to. I still had all those other yes. ones coming in, but I had that voice of God. Yes. You know who you are. I know who you are. Yes. And I, yes. I could, but that was a powerful moment to be able to say, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm recognizing that voice in the midst Mm -hmm. of the trigger, Mm -hmm. which is what means that it's being reshaped and 
and the yes. package being redone. Yes. And to me, in biblical terms, I look at that and I say, that's the glimpse of new creation and resurrection right there. Ooh, to I be able that. to say, <laughs> to be able to say that like that, that self that has gone through the trauma and is defined by that is in the process of dying. And I want to be really careful about saying, you know, it has died because people can get really triumphalist and just say, oh yes, yeah, so that was the old man. Now we got the new man. So live in that. And that can be very debilitating and disempowering mm -hmm. as well as dismissive. Yeah. So I just want to be clear that it is very much like Paul says, you know, daily putting to death the deeds of the body, which isn't just about some kind of asceticism or spiritual practice, but it's all about as you said, realizing who you are, who you belong to, and what God did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection for you. Yeah. Okay. What are some ways we can reconnect when we so, feel ready to? Mm -hmm. So when we feel ready to is a big one. When we've been given the grace to do so is a big one. And when we feel safe is an absolutely necessary one. Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, it has to happen in a place of safety. It cannot just be pushed in there because that's what I'm quote unquote supposed to do or what I've been told I have to do or whatever. So I talk with my clients an awful lot about, I use a lot of what are called somatic techniques or focusing on the body, using the body to help heal the mind, the heart and everything else, trying to get the body, the mind, the heart, the whole person, the nefesh, the soul, the life of the body, all in alignment. Um, just talked about nefesh. Yeah. There's a great video about this from the Bible Project online. You can find it on YouTube. It's super quick. It's only about five to seven minutes and a whole podcast series that links to it. That's a lot longer to dig deep into awesome. it all. But the bottom line here is that Nefesh is essentially, it's a life. It's a whole being fully considered the spirit within that being, the body of that being, you know, all of those things put together, the whole person, the whole life is a nefesh. And so sometimes you hear that phrase, you are a soul, but you have a body. When really what it is, is like, no, we ourselves, like our whole life is that soulish part of us. And so including our body, and it's not just an add-on, it's intrinsic part of what it means to be a soul, to be an afesh. And so when I work with people in my practice, we work on that integration aspect, trying to gain an integration of the way that our body responds to trauma and the way that our hearts, our emotions respond to trauma and the way that our head responds to trauma and all getting those into alignment with that spiritual dimension, that spiritual component. And so when we talk about how to reconnect after trauma, after church hurt, it looks very much like helping your body feel safe helping your emotions feel safe, helping your thoughts be in a safe space. And that may look like tiny little steps bit by bit, one bit at a time. And that's part of what I would consider to be very sacred work is a person who looks at a world where God feels dangerous and they still push in. And that to me is just worthy of so much awe. Mm. I've been thinking a lot about this. I'm, I'm writing a book and the chapter I'm working on is felt safety. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Karen Purvis, I she may, might have coined that term for adoptive families and working with children from hard places. But 
-hmm. It's something I've been thinking a lot about in the context of how to be Christian and actually walk walk in a way that is not going to be safe. Like the, Mm -hmm. the asks I'm navigating don't feel safe as far as Mm -hmm. there's no guarantee. There's no outcome promise. There's no life without pain until the next life. So how do I embed this idea of felt safety? Mm. How do I start Mm -hmm. understanding the feeling of safety that does have Mm -hmm. a physiological, and that's what it sounds like Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. Yes. The idea that it is understanding what safety feels like when you are truly in a space, there's no danger, mm-hmm. but then being able to take that with you right, into situations where danger is very much present. Correct. I, being a very somatic oriented therapist, I would always say it starts with the body. <laughs> it starts with finding your somatic anchors, finding the thing, the parts of your body that feel resourceful, the parts of your body that are, that feel the most connected to God, the parts of your body that feel the most connected to other people and inhabiting those spaces too. Because what happens is our brains are wired for negativity in general, like under quote unquote normal conditions and trauma and abuse only heightens that to the nth degree. And so what we do tend to do is we tend to kind of live in the space that feels unsafe. And it's important to start with your own body and say, what parts of my body do feel safe, do feel resourceful, do feel connected to that spiritual component and that spiritual dimension. I talk with my clients a lot about orienting, which is like walking into a space and finding anchors of safety, finding little signs of safety that basically convince your nervous system. This is a space that we can be in without being under survival threat. We may still feel the threat. I want to be really clear. That felt sense of safety doesn't mean I go, oh, great. I will welcome people into my life. No, it, what it means is I feel unsafe, but I have resources as well. I love that. Can you give me an example for yourself? One way. Sure. One of the, one of the things that I do an awful lot that I pay a lot of attention to is my posture. So like right now, actually, because I'm kind of hunched over as I'm, as I'm giving this, I notice that there's a lot of discomfort that I feel that comes out in some of my emotional content. And there's some work that I'm doing kind of in the background as I talk about parts of me that feel very kind of you know, irritated because of just this this posture that I've been holding. And so one of the things that it helps me to do an awful lot is to notice the way that I'm holding my spine. I do a lot of what's called lengthening the spine. I talk to people about imagining you've got like a little string attached to the crown of your head. And there's a very gentle pull being pulled up on that. And noticing, but not just simply like doing that as like a, okay, that's an exercise and now I'm magically better, but doing it as an observation exercise full of curiosity. If someone pulls on that string and my spine lengthens, what happens? Getting curious and noticing, how does it change my breath? How does it change my emotional content? How does it change my feeling of being connected to God? How does it change my feeling of being accepted, being loved? And maybe the answer is it doesn't. But (laughs) the simple process of curiosity itself is 
part of the rewiring from trauma. Because when you're, when you're traumatized and you're operating in that trauma response, you can't be curious because the only thing you can do is protect, is stay safe, stay alive, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. But by going, huh, I wonder what's happening. Let me sit with this. Let me observe it. Let me notice it. Let me get curious about it. That itself is a non-trauma response. It activates what we call like the ventral vagus nervous system chain that is all part of our social engagement system. And so doing that is a huge piece of what it looks like to use the body to help recover from trauma and rebuild connection. There was so much in that that I am really loving. And I'm just mm-hmm. really thinking about my own mm-hmm. somatic, safety things. Yes. So I've had a ton of issue with being able to talk about my story and Mm -hmm. which is why it's just so funny that God's like, Hey, let's go talk about these things. I'm going to be with you. We're going to do this. But I had this whole somatic thing Mm -hmm. with my counselor. I've had this stuff in my shoulders for a really long time. Mm -hmm. One of the things we talked about was that it's a likely spot for your trauma to get trapped. Yeah. And my therapist said one, Mm -hmm. because I kept having was I was in crisis. Our family was, mm-hmm. I kept having these shoulder things happening. I was doing neurofeedback and it was making it happen mm-hmm. a little bit. The EMDR has always made it happen. Mm-hmm. And so she said, Eddie, why don't you just let it go? Like, why don't you Yep. just sometime, but this is where, this is like one of those times where Jesus was with me in it, where I did not have another person with me, but I absolutely felt, and literally I would have these spasms overtake my body. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. And I needed it so, so badly. And then I would have these pauses where I would feel, I would be in fetal position. I would feel wrapped around and I heard rest, baby, rest. Mm. Is that correct? I mean, it's just so, it's such a, I, it's such a beautiful thing. So I'm just sharing. Praise that God. Oh my gosh. It was like, but it was, <sighs> It's something that I do speak about in like just that space of Jesus being with me and best baby rest in the middle of that. And then I did process it all with my counselor afterward. Yes. Yes. That message is so, so powerful. And that is, that is what Jesus offers. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest baby. Rest. Yes. Yes. That's why I talk about the voice of Jesus. Uh, like the voice of Jesus actually was really interesting. I think we could probably talk for a million years, Spencer. So thank yes, you. I feel, yes, I just we could. I feel like I learned <laughs> so much today. My learning, that learning longing is so filled up today. That's really awesome. Is I, I feel like. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> praise God. Thank you, God. Um, Is there anything else that you really want to make sure you say before we. I, I would just want to say a quick word about forgiveness, just because that gets thrown around an awful lot as like the solution, the fixer, the fix all is you just got to forgive people. And I want to be really clear that is not true. And that is not the solution that what forgiveness is all about, at least as far as I can tell, because there is a lot of complexity (laughs) to what the way that the Bible talks about forgiveness And I suppose the one thing that's kind of stuck with me the most is the way the Old Testament talks about forgiveness, especially in the context of atonement, that, you know, the offering makes atonement and then they will be forgiven. And the way that those 
terms are talked about is as the Hebrew word is nasa avon. So the idea there is carrying or bearing burdens, bearing the consequences, bearing the weight that is caused by sin. So I always want to be really careful with people to say that like forgiveness is all about the strong bearing the burden of the weak. Mm. And that forgiveness is not something that people who are in a unsafe or vulnerable position need to be doing. That there is a God who forgives and there's also a God who is just, and that is the God who is going to be carrying the burden of the sin of the people who have abused, who have abused them. And he will be dealing with that. And I just want to be really clear that in those, that when forgiveness is there, it has to be something done in the power of God with the grace that you are given to be able to be strong, to be able to bear under that weight. It's not a universal mandate that everybody has to do all the time. So if anyone's getting that message, I just want to be clear that that's, that's not how I read the Bible and that's not biblical in my opinion. I would love but what is, okay. yeah. No, I would just go love ahead, to have you come on ahead. and talk about that for a whole episode where we... That actually might be a smart idea. It really might be just because it is so complex and so delicate and it and really has like, to be. Jesus says, forgive yeah. them so that you'll be forgiven. I mean, there's so many. Yep. yep. But what you are making me think of right now in mm -hmm. Bama. Okay. So I did a whole year of surrender. Like that was my word. And I yeah. just studied mm -hmm. it. I prayed it and I did all this. But mm -hmm. one of the things that came out of the Bama podcast was mm -hmm. the idea of that surrender is the ultimate form of forgiveness because we are giving whatever it is. To yes. You. Yes. So that's, that's what I'm hearing from you too. Yeah. It is super it's complex. So and right? yeah, that helped mm -hmm. me. That was the first step I just had. I was just, we were just at a marriage conference and this one was like huge because I thought I had given this thing. I thought I'd given my abuse to God. I thought I had forgiven mm. the person who abused me. Mm -hmm. And then this thing happened and I'm mad at them again and I haven't forgiven them and I hate that this happened. Mm. And then this thing happened and this thing had happened. And then like, I suck at forgiving mm. is what I felt. I literally had my world revamped where it was like, no, every time something new happens to you until that full healing yes. does happen, yes. yes, there is hope that it will. Hmm. So the lady at the conference said, every new event that triggers the original will mean that you also have to forgive again. Like you said, yes, I'm going to forgive, but now you have to forgive again. And so it's little forgivenesses along the way. And for me, then I was like, oh, what that means is surrender. And I also thought I had to do that solo with God, just me and God. Like, I'm going to just keep forgiving yep. even it to you. But what they, yep. the husband of this partnership said was that if you're the perpetrator, if you're the church member, whether you are mm -hmm. the one who caused the harm or not, mm -hmm. you're the husband who caused the harm, or you're the husband walking with the wife who was abused, mm -hmm. you can partner in forgiveness by saying, I bet that was triggering. I bet yes. this thing is triggering. I bet this is going to bring yes. up that old wound. Yes. You're going to like hold their hand and you're going to name it. Yep. It's gonna... By creating safety and connection. And you're going to tell them you are not alone in this world. Mm -hmm. And God has given us people and he has made us as people in community and churches to do that with each other. Absolutely. And that's, that's what the church should be. That's what the church should be. Amen. 
not a group of people who tells everybody, well, you just need to forgive your abuser, but someone who comes in there and says, we are going to step into this dangerous and scary space of creating safety and creating connection, believing that the people who have been abused by creating the safe space for them to be, to be hurt. And we are going, we know that we can carry that burden because we are doing so in imitation of the person who carried our burdens. That's what the church should look like. And that's what a trauma-informed church should look like. Let's do this. Let's make this trauma-informed church real. (laughs) (laughs) No, we are doing that because we're trauma-informed members of churches, right? Mm -hmm. And that's another reason why it's really important for me to stay in that space. Uh, Even though there are many things that I disagree with from a theological perspective, although I still maintain that I'm well within the bounds of orthodoxy, like, but it's super important for me to mean to stay in that space and not to get mentative about it and tell everybody, whoa, here's why you're wrong about PSA. Goal is just to say, look, God wants better for us. And he's told us that in the scriptures. And he's inviting us to become that message of reconciliation. That's what Paul talks about when he says we become the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians 5. It's all in the context of his ministry of reconciliation. And that's what it looks like to become the righteousness of God is to be the one who breaks down the dividing walls and brings people in for healing and wholeness. Okay. I want to end there. I want to let that be the final statement. I love it. (laughs) I just, I feel like that message that's, that's so needed. Mm -hmm. So needed. Awesome. Thank you again, Spencer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm really grateful that you were willing to do this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Spencer, for dedicating so many hours of your life to study and work through what you believe. And of course, sharing that with us. Every time we get to hear how God walks with one of our friends, we get a glimpse into the kingdom happening right here and right now. Here are some of the treasures I discovered through this conversation. Number one, the process of deconstruction is about getting clear with what you believe, not simply sticking with what other people tell you is true. Number two, because of the way our brains are designed, you must speak with love if you want people to hear the truth. Number three, atonement means reconciliation. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension is all about us getting reconnected to the God who created us and loves us deeply. Number four, God is not in the business of wanting to punish his favorite part of creation, us. Number five, we are God's favorite part. Jesus did not take our place for punishment. Jesus carried our sin and defeated death so that we could be close to God. God never wanted any of us to endure the pain and torture Jesus endured through the process of crucifixion. And that is why the entire process feels so horrific to us. The whole process, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Holy Spirit is how the promise of connection with God is fulfilled. Number six, we need to do reconnection work in safe community after surviving any kind of trauma or abuse. Number seven, the church needs to be a safe and welcoming partner for people in their healing journeys. And number eight, the topic of forgiveness needs its own special episode. Spencer, you gotta come back. 
So I'd love to hear what treasures you find as you've listened today. If you're looking for the resources mentioned in this episode, be sure to check out the show notes. You can connect with Spencer through his website at Renewed Life Counseling and on Facebook at Renewed Life Counseling. Both of those links are in the show notes. You can find me on Instagram at 80 Tilford Writes, Facebook at 80 Tilford Author, and at my website, 80tilford.com. If you're loving what you hear and want to help financially support the production of this podcast, you can contribute through the link in the show notes. And of course, be sure to subscribe to my monthly newsletter for the pod and fun tips for saying yes to God's promises for your life. When you do, you get a free printable to help you increase love and invite healing with Brian Post's three up, three down strategy found in episode 11. I also want to say thank you to my family for supporting my dreams and letting me spend time in this work instead of folding laundry. 8,000 Promises is an original podcast produced and published by me, A.D. Tilford. Thank you to my dad, Ken Coons, for permission to use his original song, Child Home, as the background music for this season, and Sarah Nunnally for the 8,000 Promises podcast art. Thanks for being here. Make great things happen for you today.